What I'd like to speak about this evening is wholeheartedness. In the Satipatthana Sutra of the Buddha, from which this meditation comes, <clears throat> the Buddha once said that if a person were to live a fully and completely in the spirit of mindfulness for seven years, or for seven months, or for seven weeks, and it's a good part, or even for seven days, that they would come to know complete, unexcelled enlightenment. For me, this has always been an incredibly important statement in that it affirms so much the immediacy of the possibility of awakening. And I know in my own practice, it has always been incredibly inspiring to have removed the distance between uh, awakening and the present moment, and how much in Buddhist teaching there is given this emphasis that we are not going somewhere else that everything that we look for doesn't lie some other place or some other time, but that what we are intent upon, intent upon awakening to, is what is possible right now. For me, this actually makes the path so much simpler because we don't have to think in terms of making ourselves perfect enough to be enlightened. We don't have to think in terms of making ourselves worthy enough of being enlightened. We don't even have to think in terms of having the right spiritual credentials. Someone who has never done a retreat before is equally as receptive and as near to awakening as someone who has spent years in the practice. There's always, of course, this paradox in Buddhist teaching that we make effort and we bring about transformation and we refine the qualities of the mind and we refine our own paramis and we do put in a lot of effort. I think it is very important in putting in all of this effort that we do remind ourselves that it really is about awakening, opening, understanding that which is present in this moment. At the heart of meditation teaching affirms again and again the immediacy and the timelessness of awakening. That something which is unconditioned, which is true, cannot be bound in time. It cannot be bound in any perception of time. It is an emphasis that also tells us again and again that the freedom and the happiness and the peace and the wisdom that our heart yearns for can never lie in some other 
dimension, but that all that we honor and all that we value and actually all that we need for awakening lies within this moment. Now these words of the Buddha that speak about the immediacy and the power of mindfulness I think also can be though interpreted in many different ways. I think for some people when they hear these mention of days, what is actually sparked or possibly sparked within them is a remarkable amount of ambitiousness and striving. This is one of the most common difficulties, the most common burdens of the spiritual path, to be so bound up within striving that it starts to look legitimate and appropriate to feel that something is wrong unless we are constantly on guard or acting as a watchdog in our practice. And sometimes it is felt that if all we need is uninterrupted mindfulness for awakening, then it's an encouragement to be very vigorous, to be very precise, to be as concentrated as possible in this moment. Now we need to, I think, really understand that whenever we enter into the realm of striving, there is an inevitable commander within that situation, and the nerve center of striving, of course, is the ego. The I feels it has something to gain by striving. It will be made better. It is an opportunity to exercise willpower an opportunity to make something happen. For a person who is very tied up with or identified with the whole field of will, then this, these words of the Buddha are somehow interpreted as being a, a wonderful opportunity to engage in these tendencies. Of course, there are also many people, many yogis, who simply feel inadequate in the face of these words. They feel they don't, they simply don't have the vigor. They simply don't have the precision. They don't have the concentration to make this kind of effort. I think we all really need to look in many ways in our practice at the place of expectation and at the place of ambition. It is totally valid to have expectations in meditation. This may seem somewhat heretical, and you've probably heard differently and probably also heard it from me, that it's totally invalid to have expectations. But I think if we are all honest, none of us come here in order to stay the same. None of us come here in order to be more intimately acquainted with what it feels like to have sore knees. None of us come here in order to have a a deeper intimacy with confusion. In fact, most of us actually come here really with the intention and the hope that there will be some fruit from putting in all this time and effort. And our expectations are valid. In fact, our expectations on that level can be totally inspiring. You know, in those moments, when we do feel lost or confused or there doesn't seem to be anything else except sore knees and sore minds, it is actually inspiring to be able to remind ourselves of really what draws us to the spiritual life, what is important to us, what is valuable to us, what do we honor, what are we committed to, 
because out of that reminder comes energy and out of energy comes inspiration often comes courage often comes willingness however the other part of expectation I think which is really actually crippling is when our expectation is accompanied by ambitiousness and this is the place where the I so much comes in setting up goals and standards which are then demanded to be fulfilled that I must become like this I must become someone else I must have a certain kind of experience I must be able to get rid of something what we do then is we make our expectations into a kind of inner authority that has the power either to reward us or to punish us and actually in being in bondage to these kind of expectations we are unlikely actually to wake to awaken to any great dimension of freedom achievement when it is judged by an inner authority of demand and expectation somehow feels very shallow sometimes it feels very very shallow you know and you have probably met the achiever in your meditation you know that offers congratulations when you've had three or four breaths in a row and you know offers denunciations you know when your mind has wandered for a few minutes and it all seems in some way to miss the point you know this is not school is not an examination this is not an attempt to prove ourselves in any way it is a dedication hopefully to wisdom and to freedom I think one of the greatest gifts of meditation is that it offers us opportunities to make new beginnings in our lives and in our consciousness it offers us opportunities to explore what is possible rather than being locked within the conditioned or the habitual meditation invites us actually invites us to look at what it means to set aside the patterns and the tendencies in our consciousness and in our lives that limit us, that bring pain and that bring alienation. Now it doesn't take really any remarkable degree of insight to know what limits us, to know what brings pain, what brings alienation. This is not difficult. Insight, I must say again and again, is one of the easiest things to come to in our lives. You know, if you sat down for five minutes this evening and wrote a little list, you know, what brings pain in my life? What brings division? What brings suffering? What brings limitation? This is not, this is not a difficult exercise. This is an insight and understanding that is actually easily accessible to us. What is more difficult, of course, 
is to actually take up the invitation to set aside those patterns and tendencies. What is more difficult is really availing ourselves of the opportunity to apply wisdom. Now we have learned through our history and through our stories and through our lives what brings pain. What we are learning here is about what it means to no longer follow the avenues of the past that are familiar and yet which do not enrich us. In that sense, meditation truly is an invitation to begin again. It is an invitation to innocence. It's an invitation to bring about truly a very radical change in our own hearts. Part of that shift and part of that change is nurturing the willingness to acknowledge that all that we seek for can actually only be found in the moment that we are present in. If we are not present, we are not able to avail ourselves of any opportunity to begin anew. Again and again, one of the great one of the great mysteries and the great beauties of Buddhist teaching is its teaching of interweaving, its teaching of non-separateness, its teaching of non-division, that really states again and again that the path really can never be separate from the goal. The vehicle can never be separate from the destination. That everything we do here, every moment that we are awake, is an opportunity to apply insight this is what the teaching of timelessness is actually all about and what the teaching of mindfulness, of being awake, is all about. A moment of judgment is a moment that offers an invitation to compassion. A moment of contraction invites us to learn what it means to open. Where else do we learn what it means to really let go and the freedom that comes from letting go except in the moment of grasping. We are not learning, this is not a rehearsal for another time. We are not learning lessons here that we will then take out and apply only at some other time in our lives. In a way, all of time is held within this moment that we are in. And that is what the teaching of mindfulness is so much about. The wisdom of generosity is learnt in that very moment of holding. The immediacy of freedom can only be discovered when we live in the spirit of freedom in this moment. When we apply insight, apply what we understand to be true, rather than following the familiar pathways of the past, in our lives, our stories are actually our greatest teachers. We know the results of judgment, of grasping, of resistance, of fear, of avoidance. We know the results of this. If we can actually learn from our stories, then we are really inspired to learn some new and profound lessons in our lives in relationship to this moment, in relationship to ourselves. We are inspired towards a radical change of heart. Mindfulness, mindfulness is not just about going slowly. 
Mindfulness is not just about watching what goes on in our experience of the moment. Mindfulness certainly doesn't mean controlling our experience or being on top of our experience in any way. This is the gravest misinterpretation of mindfulness, where I have seen many times people begin to use mindfulness almost as a kind of weapon against themselves, as a more enlightened judge, you know, that says, no, I shouldn't have been not been paying attention. No, I shouldn't be making that judgment. No, uh, if I was a better person, I wouldn't feel so uptight or judgmental of someone else. This is not mindfulness. This is not mindfulness. A kind of more more heightened heightened capacity to judge in greater precision. When we are present in each moment totally, when we are dedicated to being present and awake in each moment, when we are wholehearted in our willingness to explore what it means to be present, then I think we are mindful. But mindfulness is not just something we do. Mindfulness is a relationship. And mindfulness is also an expression of insight. It's an expression of understanding. One of the understandings, or one of the insights that mindfulness actually expresses is our own inner willingness to set aside preferences and prejudices. Now, prejudice is one of the greatest obstacles in meditation. We very easily continue our tendency to compartmentalize the world in our own meditation path. Sometimes we may ha make hierarchies and we say, well, this is really worthy of being mindful of and this is not. We make other kinds of prejudices and preferences. We say, this is desirable to be mindful of, to pay attention to. This doesn't matter. That something is worthy of paying attention to and something else is not. Sometimes we think we are going to become more enlightened because we're sitting on our rear ends rather than our, in our capacity to listen to the sound of a bird. Mindfulness has a quality, I feel, of unconditional openness and dedication. The willingness to learn from and to see and to receive the lessons of each moment. This is expressed in our commitment. Commitment is an important word, I think, in this path. Now, in some ways, we can say, well, we're really good at commitment. You know, we can bring out our diaries and say, look at all of my commitments. You know, I'm committed until 1997 to this and to that and the other. Our lives can be filled with commitment. But I think there is something more profound about commitment that is important in this path that is, can only be expressed in actually how we rest within this moment, how we relate to this moment, what we actually love in this moment, what we feel a passion for 
in this moment. Surely this is what gives life to commitment, not because we, we've made some sort of decision or, or dedicated a certain amount of time. Surely the life of commitment is actually lies within a bond of the heart, a bond of the heart that actually brings a great intimacy with the present moment and with ourselves. It is important, I feel in all of our lives, to very much clarify, to take the time to reflect upon what it is we actually feel committed to, what it is that we actually honor, what it is that we feel that we value. It's very easy to wander in our lives. It's very easy to wander in our meditation, to be drawn to what feels interesting, what feels exciting, what feels pleasurable, what feels comfortable, or what feels easy. It is very easy to wander. And I think taking some time to reflect upon what is actually we are committed to somehow so much clarifies our own path and our own direction. And it actually brings a great deal of courage. It actually brings a great deal of courage that is needed because being honoring what we are committed to doesn't always mean being with the comfortable. It doesn't always mean being with the most pleasant or the most easy. Sometimes living in accord with what we feel committed to can be an extraordinarily challenging path in our life. Sometimes if we reflect upon what we are committed to, it is helpful to look at really what enriches our world what enriches our lives, what actually makes a difference. It's not appearance or performance or rewards or gains or successes or applause. Surely what really makes a difference in our lives and in our path and in our world is our own commitment to peace, to wisdom, to non-separation, to freedom. Mindfulness is about the present moment. It is about us in the present moment. It is about the nature of our relationship to this moment. If we look at the nature of the mind in the present moment, we see that it has an inclination to follow some rather well-traveled pathways. And then I think sometimes we, when we look at how much actually goes on in the mind, uh, we are tempted to conclude, well, I have so many tendencies, I have so many patterns, you know, I don't even know what to focus upon. But when I think we look a little bit more closely, we see that the mind that is actually being governed by the I is actually being governed by fear. And the mind that is being governed by the I and by fear follows some very basic pathways. They're the pathways of the movement away from things, distractedness. They are the movements towards things, clinging for security. And they are the movement of trying not to notice that there is anything at all. 
and that is numbness. This is the options essentially that the mind dances between when it is seeking for some sort of order or some sort of identity or security within the present moment. If you think of the movement away from things, away from thoughts, away from people, away from sensations, away from images, away from the unpleasant, uh, all the things the mind likes to move away from, avoidance. Often when it moves away from things, it looks for somewhere to go to. So where is the mind going to go if it's not going to be with what actually is? And it has to make something. And it has to make something. So it will make something in terms, uh, it'll obviously look for something that's most interesting to make. I mean, if the mind's going to move away from something, it would like to go somewhere that's offering something better or seems to be offering something better. So the movement away from things tends to be filled with distractedness, fantasy, constructions, dwelling, preoccupation. Now if we look at the mind, I mean the mind, you mustn't blame the mind. You know, the mind is not some sort of uh, evilly motivated, independent entity that has its own kind of agenda. The mind is actually not at fault. There's no problem with the mind. <coughs> the difficulty arises when the mind is more governed by the eye and by fear. And then it follows these avenues with distractedness. What happens with distractedness and fantasy in combination is the eye has actually found a wonderful, apparently wonderful solution to unrest. Because what it manages to do is to move away from things and towards things at the same time. It manages to combine avoidance and grasping. So this seems like a wonderful sanctuary to go to. So we have all these fantasies and constructions and dwelling. What does it say about our relationship to the present when we are tied up in avoidance and clinging? What does that movement actually say about our relationship to the present? Actually, it's a kind of scream. It's a kind of shriek of the eye that says something is missing. Something is lacking in this moment. Something is absent that I am fairly convinced I need. What is absent, of course, is connectedness. It is what is absent. The openness to learning sometimes is absent. The willingness to stay just with what is at times what is missing. What the fantasy and the constructions do or attempt to do is to replace or to suppress the pain of there being something lacking with the endless scenarios that the mind can be so creative at producing. But actually the engagement with those fantasies and construction is actually a pursuit of further alienation. The other option that the mind at times is tempted towards is, of course, the path of numbness. Numbness, just numbing out, not being there, 
being somewhere else, kind of drifting. Sometimes we notice numbness more in dullness because we have a perception of sameness. You know, everything looks the same. And the present moment in that dullness seems to be lacking in vitality. It's very important, I think, to understand that dullness may very well be a renunciation of sensitivity, consciously or unconsciously, because at times it is painful to wake up. We know that. You know, it's the same as with our bodies. You know, if you've had a leg that falls asleep in a sitting, you know it's painful when it wakes up. Well, sometimes it's painful to wake up. Numbness seems an easier option. Now, there isn't actually any truth in sameness. This, this defies all basic principles of the universe. There's actually no truth in sameness. So we may say, well, it looks the same because it's not interesting. It's not exciting. Sometimes we say, well, there's nothing interesting about the breath. You know, no matter how much you fool around with the breath, it kind of looks the same. You know, one breath looks very much the same as another. You know, you fool around with some short breaths and you fool around with some long breaths. You know, sometimes you have a breath at the nostril and sometimes a breath at the abdomen and it's still basically a breath. And you say, well, there's nothing very interesting here. And then sometimes we go a little bit further and say, well, there's nothing really very interesting about this moment. You know, the thoughts look kind of the same as the thoughts I've had before. And, you know, how many times, really, how many times have I looked at that same sensation in my knee? You know, it really, it's, you know, it ceases to hold. You know, sure, first we treat it was kind of intriguing to <laughs> see that sensations dissolved when you looked at them, you know, but after a while, kind of loses the thrill, you know, it's just a sensation, right, it looks very much like another sensation. So, and when we start to perceive sameness, we start to disconnect at times. It doesn't say very much about the present moment, but at times it says a great deal about us. Miller-Eppa once said that a wandering thought is the essence of wisdom. The same could be said about a single breath. The same could be said about a single sensation. A single breath is the essence of wisdom. A single breath, a single step, a single thought, a single sensation actually invites us to understand the mystery and the enchantment of each moment. A single breath and a single step is actually an invitation to step out of positions of alienation and numbness, to wake up, to wake up. Boredom and dullness sometimes tells us about our own addiction to intensity. that we are awakened only by being in contact with something which is dramatic or intense or vital. That we need to be in contact with something with it which is intense in order for us to be awake in our lives. Now this is you know, becoming one of the most common sicknesses in our culture, addiction to intensity that we need more and more and more to wake us up. So we have more and more extremes within everything. 
within the media, within consumption, within the realm of experience. And yet somehow we see that in the face of this addiction, it seems that the consciousness becomes more and more numb. It is a devaluing, a dishonoring, I feel, of our own capacity for wakefulness, for vitality, for aliveness, to be dependent upon intensity for wakefulness. Every wandering thought, every step and every breath reveals to us so much about every single moment in our lives. Within them we see birth and death. Within them we see beginnings and endings. Within them we see the way life reveals itself to us. We see the way each moment unfolds. And we also see ourselves reflected in every single breath, in every single step. We see the ways in which we might fall into grasping and holding. The ways in which we might fall into rejection or pursuit. The ways in which we might start to look for solidity. This is what is seen in every step and every breath. We also see in every step and every breath what is possible for us in each moment. We see the invitation to let go and to open, to nurture sensitivity, to connect with simplicity. We see the invitation to forgiveness, to compassion, to openness of heart. This is what is revealed to us through mindfulness, through the willingness to be wholehearted in this moment. A part of wholeheartedness, I feel, is devotion. Devotion. This is actually a very devotional path. We don't have pictures on the walls. We don't have special people. We don't have special images to project devotion towards. We are asked to explore devotion on its most fundamental level, our own willingness to receive, to learn, to bond, to express love of wakefulness, of being here. Where else are we going to be if we are not present? Our options are limited. We will be dwelling upon the past or dwelling upon the future. And we will be homeless, alienated from wakefulness, alienated from being at home within this moment. Devotion, I think, is the open-heartedness which is eager to receive the lessons of each moment. It is expressed in love and in passion. It is necessary for connectedness. It is not a fanatical passion, not a fanatical love, nor is it self-centered or self-interested. Rather, I feel the devotion that is brought to this practice is an expression of a profound trust that the compassion and the wakefulness and the connectedness that will heal the divisions and the sorrows within ourselves. It's the same compassion and wakefulness that will heal the sorrows and the separations in our world. Acceptance and forgiveness is part of devotion. 
Acceptance is important in this path, not passivity and not resignation and not the acceptance that says, no, this is the way I am, you know, where you start tracing your family tree to find the first ancestor who began the path of judgment, you know. So you can say, this is such a long history, I will always be like this, you know. This is actually not acceptance, not what acceptance is all about. Acceptance is more the willingness to question and to not believe so strongly in our judgments and our descriptions about the world and about ourselves. Acceptance is the willingness to give space to our judgments rather than becoming ensnared by them. We know what the consequences of a lack of acceptance are. It is war and struggle and battles within ourselves. It is also the tendency to set up so many shoulds. Struggle and should have an inseparable relationship in, in, in our life. If we struggle in our meditation, I think sometimes it's very important for us to question what we are not willing to make room in our hearts for. About ourselves, about another person, about the world around us. Should separates us from what is. And shoulds make us very, very busy in meditation. And very, very busy in our lives. We can see what shoulds do. You know, you only need a single should in meditation. I should be more loving. Or I should be more generous. Well, you know, this is an invitation to an incredible amount of busyness as we try and rearrange and redecorate our minds and our personalities and our experience to fit in with our ideas of how we should be. What cannot coexist with should is calmness. What cannot coexist with should is serenity or harmony or compassion. Because shoulds always carry the flavor of rejection and aversion. Acceptance acceptance is really exploring what it means to open our hearts to all things to be able to welcome to be able to greet with equanimity the pleasant and the unpleasant the flattering and the unflattering that which we have desire for and that which we have aversion to Acceptance is an invitation to return again and again to see what is actual. To see that the world, when we withdraw our projections, ceases to be an opponent. That our own mind and our own heart, when we withdraw our shirts and our projections, also ceases to be an opponent. Another part, another ingredient of us of mindfulness and of wholeheartedness is the ingredient, the quality of contentment. Contentment, I feel, is integral to the path of mindfulness and also to the path of acceptance. Now, few, very few people begin a retreat thinking that everything is perfect in their lives or in the world or in themselves. 
actually we are often brought here by a certain amount of discontent. And when we come here, sometimes we think that happiness, happiness is later. First we suffer, then we're happy later. Or first we must understand why we suffer, and then we'll be happy. But happiness sometimes, I think, feels like a very far-off destination that we may reach, if we're lucky, after we've worked out all of our imperfections. Contentment is sometimes looked at as being a result of meditation. You know, we think this is what I'm here to do, to find contentment, to find contentment that comes from meditation. Contentment is actually a prerequisite to deepening in meditation. A certain level of happiness that is a prerequisite to deepening in meditation. This may seem strange. It doesn't mean that I expect, you know, that you would come skipping into the meditation room, singing little songs before every sitting, saying how happy I am, you know, how happy I am to be here. No, this is not the kind of happiness that is important. Contentment is, is about a different kind of happiness. It is the willingness to unconditionally be present with what is. There's a remarkable contentment in that. I mean, think about how much happiness there is if you're not rejecting anything. You know, if you're just willing to be present with what is, if you withdraw your judgments, withdraw your judgments, withdraw your labels, withdraw your projections, withdraw your shoulds. Is there any reason you wouldn't be content? No. You'll be totally content. It doesn't matter whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. It's contentment just to be there. Because what is offered to us here? What is offered to us here? An invitation to intimacy. An invitation to bonding, to coming closer, to learning from what is already here and what is already with us. To stop being for and against. To stop being for and against reveals a remarkable contentment. Now, it is actually a real possibility in our lives that we will never, ever have a perfect body, a perfect mind, a perfect personality, or have the perfect experience. This is a real possibility. You know, no matter how many fantasies we have, this is a real possibility. Is this a problem? Is peace, is contentment actually dependent upon the absence of the challenging or the difficult or the unpleasant? No. Peace is related to our willingness to live without prejudice. As long as we follow the path of seeking perfection, seeking the pleasant, we follow the path of craving, we can never be at peace. We can never be at peace as long as we follow the path of craving. Because the path of craving means that we are always wanting, always reaching, always seeking for something other. Like a hungry ghost, wandering through our world and wandering through our minds, always looking for something that seems to be promised and yet is never found. This is what the path of craving is all about. You know, in, the, in Tibetan cosmology, you, know, you have these 
these images of hungry ghosts, you know, the, these beings who are really intent on, on making contact and consuming the pleasant and always reaching for, these, for, for all these things that they want, you know, and they wander through a world, you know, that is filled apparently with feasts, you know, and they're right next to them, but they have these incredibly scrawny little necks, you know, so that no matter how much they take in, they can't swallow it. You know, they can never be full and never be satisfied, and so they're always sentenced to wandering on. The path of craving, of wanting, of reaching for something else, of always looking and striving, can never be a path of peace. This doesn't mean not making changes. It doesn't mean not exploring possibilities. It doesn't mean not exploring our own potential as a human being. But it means looking at where we invest our peace, or the possibility of our peace, the possibility of happiness, and the possibility of freedom into anything outside of this moment and outside of ourselves. What the path of craving does offer us is much aversion, much rejection, and much denial. The mindfulness, mindfulness and wholeheartedness is really exploring what it means to step out of this consciousness, to step out of the consciousness and the mind of reaching, of struggling, of grasping, of craving. Mindfulness means exploring the mind, the consciousness of renunciation, of letting go of letting go of our addictions. This doesn't mean loss or deprivation. This is, you know, renunciation is only a threat to the addicted mind. Renunciation is no threat when there's no addiction. It's really looking at where we invest our identity and security and safety and having and possessing. Renunciation is about now. You know, renunciation is a real thing. You know, renunciation is not some kind of good idea, you know, about, you know, packing up all our possessions and giving them to the Sisters of Charity. You know, renunciation is not about going and living in a cave. Renunciation is not about grandiose gestures, you know, shaving our heads and putting on a robe. Renunciation is actually about now. Where do we explore renunciation? We explore renunciation in the moment of reaching. In the moment of reaching for something other to fill us up, it might be in terms of personal space, it might be the second cup of tea, it might be in terms of how much sleep we have just convinced ourselves we need. Renunciation might be in terms of, of how much territory we feel we must possess. These are the places where we explore what it means to live with a liberated heart, what it means when we let go of the grasping. These are the moments of mindfulness, of wakefulness, of waking up, of not being driven by conditioning, not being driven by tendencies and by patterns. And mindfulness is also a way of honoring that which is most true and most genuine within ourselves. We are really not so poor inwardly that our identities can only be affirmed by gaining and possessing and by having things we call mine. We are not so poor inwardly 
that we can only be affirmed to our success at getting rid of the unpleasant or having the pleasant. There does lie within each of us a profound nobility of spirit and heart. The nobility and the greatness of our own hearts is not dependent on having or not having, not dependent on being in control or not in control. Renunciation actually reveals to us contentment, and it is also empowering. You know, we can live in a way where we think that we need all of these things in order to be someone, that I have to have all of these trots in my life in order to know who I am, in order to be someone, that I have to have all of these experiences in order to be worthy, that I have to be a special kind of person having special credentials in order to be noticeable, in order to be worthy. There's something incredibly empowering about being without, about discovering the richness of simplicity, the richness of being, the richness of stillness, the richness of being able to rest within this moment and know a profound level of openness and vitality and richness. And sometimes it is said that this path is not difficult for those who have no preferences. This is, you know, this is true. This path is not difficult for those who have no preferences. In that sense, I feel also that this statement tells us a little bit about surrender. One of the last thing, one of the first things to appear on a meditation retreat is the negotiator. One of the last things to disappear on a retreat is the negotiator. Everyone has the negotiator at some point. The negotiator is the one who makes deals, who makes deals with the present moment. You know, the negotiator might say, well, you know, if I'm really, if I really make a big effort this sitting, I'll have a sleep afterwards. You know, or if I'm really finished walking, you know, I'm going to take the next sitting off. You know, or if I really make an effort here for 15 minutes, I'm going to let myself have a really juicy fantasy. You know, or the negotiator, the negotiator is often in action in a very unconscious way. The negotiator, you know, says, well, you know, uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, you know, I'm not quite ready yet. I'm not quite ready yet, you know, to be really mindful. Tomorrow, you know, I'm warming up. I'm warming up, you know, and I'm getting a little warmer every day, you know, and, you know, in a few days I'm going to be really hot to trot, you know, and I'm going to be really mindful. That's the negotiator, you know. The negotiator says, you know, I actually need more food, and I actually need this because if I don't have enough protein, you know, my body falls apart, and then I can't meditate <laughs> properly, you know. And the negotiator is always making deals with the present moment. The negotiator also is full of excuses, you know. The negotiator says, well, you know, if I didn't sit beside this person who's always snuffling and sniffling, then my meditation would be really fun, you know. Or if I didn't have a roommate who snored at night so I can't get a decent night's sleep, you know, then I would be really mindful, you know. Or if only, you know, if I didn't have this kind of mind, then I'd be a terrific meditator. This is the negotiator. We all, I think, meet the negotiator at some point. It is that kind of face of resistance that says, 
you know, letting go sounds like a good idea. You know, but in practice, maybe I really have to let go of something. You know, maybe I even have to let go of myself. You know, and so this space of resistance comes up. And the negotiator is trying to protect and defend. It's trying to stay in control. It is not quite so enthusiastic about this idea of wholeheartedness. And I think there is a point, actually, for us when we need to recognize the negotiator and say, here I am willing to surrender. Here I am willing to surrender. To know that just as it's not possible to have a conditional compassion, just as it's not possible to have a conditional loving kindness, just as it's not possible to have a conditional forgiveness or, or, or openness, it's also maybe not possible to have conditional mindfulness. And this is the place where mindfulness is really about wholeheartedness. When there's that willingness to surrender to wakefulness, that willingness just to surrender to wakefulness, to have that wholeheartedness that reveals to us what intimacy and what closeness and what connectedness and what wakefulness is actually all about. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with wakefulness. May all beings live in a wholehearted way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.